You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Good morning, church. First service did so much better. (laughs) My name is Jeff Haley. I serve here as a deacon in the care ministry, and I mentor home group leaders. And I'm going to be reading from Luke 2.21 this morning. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, y'all. How you doing? Good. Okay, did you have a good Christmas? Yeah? Okay. Some of you, that's half the room. Um, Hey, my name is Mason King. I'm one of the elders here. I oversee our home groups and our institute, which is like in-house theological training. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Thanks for joining us this morning. Now, uh, last weekend, we gathered to celebrate the coming of the Incarnation, which is the culmination of Advent because Jesus is born. It's the moment where everything in history changed. So you stood in this room, if you were here with us, and we sang Silent Night. You may have seen me trying to keep my six-year-old from burning someone's hair, and we all just tried to make it out. Okay, right? That's what we did. Then on Tuesday, well, we had Monday. I don't want to skip over Christmas whole. On Monday, you had Christmas, and we celebrated the birth of Christ. Many of us do that by opening presents. Sometimes it's loud and crazy and early. We were done with presents by 7.30 in the morning. Try and beat that. Um, It was early. And uh, then we went to my parents' house. Had a great day. But I sat with a friend last night, and I said, how was your Christmas? And she said, it was a lot quieter than it used to be. And before, this is not my sermon. Just before we get started, I realized, like, hey, this last week, for some of you, was the first where someone was absent. It was the first where... You were entering into a season of going, man, we, we lost someone this year. Things have different. Our, our family is different. You may have traveled and been somewhere that didn't feel like home. It's supposed to be home. It's called home. It didn't feel like home. You may have been with family that was hard. And so I just want to say, you're here. And if you're feeling whose heart's in the room, don't like exhale really loudly. But <laughs> you're, you're here among the bride of Christ. You're just here. You get to exhale And today, we get to feast on Jesus, to inhale with hope. And so I hope that that's true for you today. Now, uh, we celebrated Christmas on Monday, and then Tuesday, we had what I have heard recently called as Dead Week. You know this? It's just where the world does not expect much from you or of you. Like, you, you can watch Elf as much as you want. And, you know, Wednesday morning, you woke up, you're eating cookies for breakfast that you swore off the night before, but you didn't throw them away. They're still there. And it's like you just moved on. You got out in the traffic if you wanted to make some returns. And you're like, what are all these people doing? What are you doing? This is this week. Like, it's just a week that is just kind of, meh. Nobody expects much of this week. And you may have noticed, um, in the last decade or two, Western evangelicals rediscovered something and thought, this is brand new. It's called the Christian calendar. It's brand new. It's not brand new. It's like 2,000 years old. And it's how we practice focusing our attention on Jesus throughout the year. Now, I'm going to show you a picture. This picture is, 
Oh, they cleaned it up for me. Had some squiggly lines in there. They cleaned it up. This is the Christian calendar from Advent to Pentecost and then ordinary time. But we take half the year and we celebrate the life of Christ and observe the life of Christ. We long for his coming and then we, ob- we observe the coming of the Christian church. And then we go into ordinary time, which is where we spend most of our life, right? Like just among the mundane. But we know that in Advent, we're longing for Christ to come both recognizing that God is fulfilling his promises all throughout the Old Testament that a a messianic king would come, a Davidic king would come. And then with Epiphany, this is the season where we are, you can go ahead and put the picture back up, I'm not done yet. So with Epiphany, (laughs) I'm just gonna keep talking. With Epiphany, it is a season where we are recognizing that Christ is God incarnate. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Now here's the thing I was reading. Uh, I'm a historian. I love thinking through traditions and how we practice things. A lot of Christian history, we did not decorate for Christmas during Advent because Advent is about longing and anticipation and desire. And then Christmas Eve, you bust out that tinsel, right? Because Christ is born. And then we would have a season called Christmastide. It's 12 days of Christmas. So if you're counting at home, where are we? Six ladies dancing, seven lords of leaping, somewhere around there. So uh, there's 12 days of Christmas, legitimately, that we would recognize that this baby, his birth, changed history. You're not done by 7.30 the morning of Christmas. You've got 12 days to go after it. And if you took down Christmas already, it's fine. There's no shame for you. All right? You've already had it up for a month. But I'm telling you that this is that we celebrate Christmas. And I, I realize that some of us are going to get into a point um, where you're making a list. And you're making a list about what's going to change. And I get it, because tomorrow morning, I'm going to show up at the gym, like I have for the last six months. And half are you going to be there? And it's great. Welcome. I will see you through March when you quit. And it is one of those things that we all have really good intentions, that we want to have some, some new, fresh starts. And I just want to talk with you this morning before you make your list of resolutions and your shoulds and your your woulds about the only hope you have for change that matters. And that's our Savior, Jesus. That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. Now, you're in Christmas side. Jesus has come. Nothing's going to be the same. And we've been in Matthew and Luke. We've watched kids read. You can put it down now. Thanks. They're scared too. So you can put it down. It's fine. Uh, We've watched the kids on the screen read through the narratives. It's so great. But I got to tell you, Matthew and Luke give more color to what happened among the birth of Christ and kind of his origin story. There's more than just angels scaring some shepherds. Like they turn up in the middle of the night and they're like, don't be afraid. Yeah, okay. Like sky blows up and there's a legion of angels and you're out in the field mind your own business. And the first thing they say is, have no fear. You're like, oh, okay, sure. But some of the gospels, it's like Jesus is born, John the Baptist is in the wilderness. And then some of them, it's like Jesus is born, here's some things that happen, and all of a sudden he gets lost at Passover at 12, which makes some young parents feel happy that some people lose their kids. And, but there's some stuff we don't want to pass, we don't want to miss in these two gospel narratives. And I love stories, and this is the story that's true, so I want to spend some time this morning just helping you focus and to see the thread of God's providence in how Christ came. All right? Are you with me on that? Okay, so we're just going to read a bunch of texts together, but not for 45 minutes, okay? So, 400 years of silence have passed, and the people of Israel are oppressed by foreign powers. 
The Davidic king has long been promised and he's been waited for because the people who are harassed and helpless, the people of Israel, God's people who are overrun and oppressed in the Greek and Roman world are looking for deliverance. And they're saying, God, will you follow through on your word? I mean, we were put into exile, we came back, we rebuilt rebuilt the temple. Some people rejoiced, other people cried because you weren't there like you were before. And then we've waited. My great, 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 great grandpappy told me that you were here and what you, what you promised, and I'm longing for you to come. Will you save us? Now, here's the thing. They were looking for a ruler like the other nations, which, if you know your Bible, sounds like Israel's history. They were looking for a ruler like the other nations. They were looking to be delivered from their oppression, they, and they wanted God to make things right. So it sounds like the Old Testament, but I also would think it sounds like today. Now, Matthew and Mark want the reader to get a sense of fulfillment and wonder. They wanted their original audience and you to read the narrative and get a sense of fulfillment and wonder. So their first few chapters are packed with rapid hits that are signposts of meaning, callbacks to God's promises, evidences of God's providence in a world thick with expectation of a God who exists and of a God who enters into the mundane of daily life. And so you could take Zechariah and Elizabeth, parents of the to-be-born John the Baptist. Zechariah is just minding his own business. He's serving in the temple. He goes in the temple, and there's another guest there. There's an angel. And Gabriel comes to him and says, he says this, you're going to have a baby, and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And Zechariah's kind of doing the math, looking at himself. He's thinking about Elizabeth who's outside, and he's going, well, I'm old. She's old. How's that going to happen? And Gabriel looks at him and goes, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and you're going to doubt my word? And he takes his voice. I mean, you think at that point, Zechariah's like, ooh, whoops. This is different. It's a different Tuesday, right? All of a sudden, he can't talk. And he's been told his wife's going to be with child. And so six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, which happens, way to go, Zechariah, happens, Gabriel visits a young girl named Mary who is engaged to be married, and he forever changes her life. And Gabriel tells her, and behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary's like, oh, okay. But here's the thing, where Eve hoped that her first son, Cain, where she hoped that Cain would fulfill the promise of crushing the serpent's head, Mary is now told that the boy that is going to grow inside of her will be the one to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3. Now go back and read Mary's Magnificat, her response to God, her response to this news. Go back and and read that. She goes, it's me? It's him? She responds with a heart of humility and faith. And so Mary comes back from visiting Elizabeth, and she's at the point of the pregnancy where, if, well, it's not hiding it well, right? Joseph sees what's going on, and he's like, something has happened. And the text says that he resolves to quietly divorce her. Now, he loves her. He wants to spend the rest of his life with her. He is engaged to her. 
And it seems that there has been some unfaithfulness, and so he figures out how to save face in this shame society, and he resolves to quietly divorce her, and then he goes to sleep. And an angel speaks to him in a dream. And the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, you know the next part of the story is that a registration is ordered. Like the government moves and Joseph has to respond. So Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So the shepherds are hanging out. They're doing their thing. They hear the good news. Sky splits, lots of sky and angels. They hear the good news. They go and visit the Christ child. And then wise men follow the star, and they go to Herod, who's the king, and they're asking about the new king. And Herod's like, what are you talking about? Those gifts, those look good. Those are for me. And they're like, no, no, that's not for you. This is for the king of the Jews. And if you know anything about Herod, Herod was a wicked, ruthless man who killed any rival, blood relative or not. And so what he does is he orders his guards to go to Bethlehem and to slaughter every boy under the age of two. Now, Christian history has inflated this to be like a 1,000 boys. Scholars would tell you it's probably around 20. It doesn't make it better. 20 families who had their infant taken from them and brutally murdered. 20 boys who lost their life because of one wicked man's grasp for power. Here's the thing. I just want to show you the Lord in the details. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared again in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice just like go to sleep and you're in a dream and it's like you wake up with directions, <laughs> right? I mean, he does it, but you, you see it in the text. He does it. The angel says to him, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard it, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. And being warmed in a dream... He withdrew the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, you and I see God's providence in hindsight, right? Yes? Okay, great. I just want to make sure you're with me. So, we see God's providence in hindsight. Stuff happens, you get down the line, you're like, oh, I'm so glad. This is why Garth Brooks wrote that song, Unanswered Prayers. Like, I'm so glad, some of you get this. I'm so glad that what I wanted didn't happen, Right? But you can, tra- you can trace the thread of God's providence. This is what the gospel writers are doing for you. They're helping you know your Old Testament. 
Because God, who is outside of time, sees all of time. God, whose ways are not like your ways, not like my ways, can handle all the details, and he moves men's hearts to bring about his plans. And what they are telling you is, all of this stuff just seems like it happens, but it happens according to providence. And so Luke gives the details of what Joseph and Mary did on behalf of Jesus to follow the Mosaic Covenant regarding the law of the firstborn, that at 40 days they brought Jesus to the temple and they fulfilled requirements to purify the firstborn and the mother and they present the firstborn to the Lord. And the text says they made a sacrifice of two doves. Now, if you read the the law, it says you slaughter a lamb or you slaughter two doves. The one is if you have the money, the other is if you don't. And so you, I just, I've been thinking about Joseph a lot the last couple weeks. Lots of dreams, lots of life change, lots of trying to work through it. All of a sudden, his bride-to-be is pregnant. An angel tells him that it's the son of God. And now the responsibility of fatherhood takes on a whole new depth. Caring for this boy. Caring for his bride as they're trying to go and find place for her to give birth. Her giving birth in an animal's pen. Having to take the boy and escape genocide. Escape slaughter. And wanting to do his best before the Lord and only able to bring the secondary sacrifice. They come to the temple, and Simeon is a prophet in the temple who sees the Christ child. And Simeon, like, it's the best day of Simeon's life. He sees the Christ child, and he praises the Lord because the one he's longed for has arrived. And Simeon says this, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for, and for glory to your people, Israel. And so Simeon tells us that Jesus is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And Gabriel told us that Jesus would come to set his people free from their sins. So all this is to tell you that God is doing something new in this child. God is doing something new in Jesus. In the middle of all this is our text for today, which happens when Jesus is eight days old, which is Tuesday, right? At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, if you've ever seen an eight-day-old eight child, they are not bringing themselves for something like this, right? They're not doing much. They're just hanging out. Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to be circumcised. They do it because they're paying attention to the law. They're taking all that they've heard and seen in mind. They're thinking about all the angels and the dreams and the existence of this child. And they're saying, how could we not honor the Lord? And so they take him to be circumcised. And if you know the story about John the Baptist and Zechariah, like, Zechariah can't talk. And they're like, what should his name be? And mom's like, John. And they're like, no, it should be after Zechariah. And then all of a sudden he gets his voice and he's like, no, she's right. Name him John. Joseph, who has seen this child and held him in faith, believing what the angels have told him, said, his name's Jesus, which means Yahweh saves So I guess I tell you that I have to tell you that Mary and Joseph understood the assignment, right? Like they got it. They did what God required. 
Luke tells us five times in chapter two alone that their actions were to bring about God's plan because not only was Jesus male, he was also a Jewish male and every Jewish male gets, cir- gets circumcised on the eighth day. And so this single verse could easily be overlooked. Like you'd be like, okay, details, 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 details. Let me get to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. And let me tell you why. It's a simple detail in a long list of events, but if you know the law, this is the first time the sinless Son of God sheds blood for sin. It's the first time. For the Son to become like us, he was born like us, but of a virgin. He was the only innocent child, born human without a fallen nature, unlike every child before him and every child after him. And yet his circumcision identifies him with the children of Abraham. It identifies him with the children of promise. It places him in line with the covenant God made with his people through Abraham, Moses, and David. The thread of God's providence shows up at his birth, at his circumcision, and it shows up when Paul tells us in Galatians 4, he says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, scholars call this verse in Galatians the most compressed and tightly charged passage in the whole book because that right there, that right there is the objective basis of our faith. Christ-centered salvation by justification by faith in Christ's work who fulfilled the law for us and delivers us from our inability to fulfill any of it that he does it for us. Timothy George says this, that Jesus grew up in a Jewish home reading the Torah, praying to his heavenly father, attending synagogue, and faithfully fulfilling as no one before him or after him has ever done all of the precepts and demands of the law. And so Joseph remembers the words of the angel in his dream. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Mary remembers Gabriel. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Jesus had to come under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. And he identified with us in every way except our fallen human nature. And he fulfilled God's law that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God. So now the text in the Gospels, if you're reading the Gospels, the text here jumps to Jesus in the temple as a child, like just 40 days later or 32 days later, or Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old, or it just goes to John the Baptist. So the reason I'm spending time with you in these chapters is because the Gospel writers intentionally take their time around Christ's lineage, like Matthew 1, all those begats. It's around his lineage and his birth, highlighting the thread of Jesus' place in the line of David, his standing within the children of Abraham and his submission to the law of God, placing him within the covenant of God towards his people. He was born under the law so that he might redeem those under the law, which, friend, is you and me. And so as we stand at the gate of the year, there's a key thing in this text that I want to talk about that you and I are born under the law. Not because of our actions, but because of our fallen human state. Because we are born with a fallen human nature and we sin. 
You and I were born from our parents, not of the Holy Spirit. As far as I know, the record of that is one, right? You're born from your parents, and we were born with inherited guilt and brokenness that earns guilt through sinful desires and actions. We are born guilty under the law, and we cannot save ourselves. If you've read Paul in the book of Romans, he says this in Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You and I need to be set free from sin and our sins. The need for salvation is not from the consequences of your bad actions, but from self-dependence, our hard-heartedness towards the things of God, our apathy towards what is true, good, and beautiful, and our fascination with dark, twisted, and broken things. I know my own heart well enough that maybe this is your experience at times, that you want to do what is right, but you hear that whisper in your soul, You feel the itch, the pull, the temptation, the thought of no one has to know. You might even think through, oh, this can't hurt anything. I've got it under control. You were born with that, friend. Try as you might to hide it, to ignore it, it exists. And so I would ask you on the other end, how come you can see beauty, truth, and goodness, and then be pulled towards brokenness? How come you can be offered a life and choose death? Because you think that God is holding out on you. That's not a new lie. Most of you will start a reading plan the next month, and you will see in the first week, that's an old lie. We need to be saved from our unwillingness, not just our momentary lapses in judgment. We need to be born again and to grow up into Christ. We need to be freed from what the old man rejoices in, which the text says is earthly, which is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is called idolatry. It's not just like, hey, that's cool, I want one of those. It's that's an idol for me. It's also called anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, which Paul tells us in Colossians that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And if Christ is not the fulfillment of the law, then you and I cannot be free from these things. We will be bound to ourselves to change. We will experience cycles of self-improvement, goal-setting, promises, and failure because we cannot free ourselves from sin within us and without. And no matter how hard you try, the salvation you need is outside of your grasp unless you are reaching for Jesus. And no mantra or effort or self-reliance or resolution will give you the freedom you need. It will not deliver you from the wrath of God. Which is to say you're under the law. You didn't choose to be, but you are. And so this is really offensive, right? Like, you don't know me. I decide what's true for me. Haven't you caught the news? It's 2023-4. I define my reality. 
I'm the master of my ship. I'm the captain of my soul. There is nothing more true of you than you are made by God. You are born broken and separated from him. And you are in need of a savior and you cannot save yourself. You and I will try and avoid this as much as we can because it is offensive for us to think that we are not in control, but you are not. And so we need to be delivered from the illusion that we are. So try as you might, you cannot free yourself from being under the law because you can't free yourself from sin. And you need a savior and I'm here to tell you it's good news because there's only one. And we've been celebrating his birth. Your heart will not be free of lust, bitterness, hate, resentment, regret, coveting or idolatry, slander, evil desire. It will not be free of those things outside of Jesus. You will just learn to pretty him up. You will just learn to hide them. You will just learn to stuff them deep down so that no one else sees them and then you will shame yourself for feeling them. And friend, friend, that that is not freedom. Nothing about that is life. You can change the externals, what you eat, how you look, how you spend your time, but these are all fruits of what we love. All of those things are driven by what we desire. And so you will continue to depend on yourself giving lip service to the forgiveness of sins because so many of us define sin as merely the actions we commit, not the heart we inherit. You are offered freedom from the enslaved heart and its fruit. Do you see that? You are offered freedom from your enslaved heart and its fruit. Which is why Jesus, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, gives you the option to receive adoption into God's family. The forgiveness of sin is not just about your actions, it's about your enslaved heart. I've been reading a book lately called uh, A Quiet Mind to Suffer With, Mental Illness, Trauma, and the Death of Christ. I am reading this book like you take in a sunset. It is very meaningful, very deep, and beautiful. But the author talks about this topic when he says, we think the forgiveness of sin is the avoiding of punishment or the evasion of responsibility. We think it means we're not in trouble anymore. We think it means we did something wrong, but that isn't what it means. The forgiveness of sin means we cannot end our own belief or our own unwillingness. It means we cannot end the hardness of the heart, our own opposition to God, because the forgiveness of sin is not for people who have done something wrong. It is for people who are bound. So I've been chewing on this throughout Advent, into Christmas tide, into the new year. And if you know me, you know I like to ask questions, and you thought, he's been going for 30 minutes, and no questions, maybe we'll get out okay. Nope. So these are the three questions I've been asking myself that I want to welcome you into, all right? Here's the first question I have that I've been asking myself. How do I view the forgiveness of my sins? And what does it say about my need for a Savior? How do I view the forgiveness of my sins? And what does it say about my need for a Savior? Second question is, what is the source of my joy and ability to be more than I was? even as I want to become who God has made me to be.
What is the source of my joy and ability to be more than I was, even as I want to become who God has made me to be? And lastly, where am I most dependent upon myself? I've shared from the stage a few times, and if, you, if we've had a conversation, I'll tell you freely, I, I've suffered from anxiety most of my life. It's the unwanted friend that has turned up since I was as far back as I can remember. And my daily experience is full of unwanted terrors, potential pitfalls, filling in gaps with my own judgments, which are strangely never positive, and then thinking over, ruminating on what I said or could have said, what I did or could have done, in endless cycles. Like to the point where throughout my life, I've just prayed for dreamless sleep. Do you know that feeling? I just want to go to sleep and just rest. I'm learning more and more, I've, I've done this all my life, that to combat this experience, I try to control everything I can around me, that I could be prepared, that I could be hypervigilant, that I could be guarded from something bad happening, which has left me standing on the outside of a lot of really good things, just to be honest with you. It's robbed me of a lot of joy, of a lot of peace, as I've tried to control my life. In an effort to find peace, I protect myself by depending on myself. In an effort to find peace, I protect myself by depending on myself to control my heart and its fruit instead of depending upon God to complete his work in me and be in control of my present and my future. And friends, it is the opposite of Christ's invitation to me and you in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is the opposite of what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, why are you worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear? Like, look at the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air. If God so clothes and cares for them, would he would not care for you more? Oh, you who are worth more. You who have a human soul. Is God not good to you? I'm so tempted to depend on myself. So I want to ask you, where are you tempted to depend on yourself? Where are you tempted to rely on your efforts to change your heart, to free yourself from sin? Maybe you don't see it that way. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's uh, you doubt you're actually forgiven of your sin. Like there's a part of your life, there's a hidden thing, there's something, there's something in your past that you think, if anyone knew this, they couldn't love me. I have to hide this thing so deep down. I'm so ashamed of it. No one can know. Friends, you are stuck in the prison of the past. The good news is for you that Christ came to set captives free. He came to set captives free. And so if you think that hating who you were will make God love who you are now, you're wrong. Bryant puts it this way in his work. He says that we depend upon ourselves by hating ourselves. That by hating ourselves, we're trying to clothe our shame and make things right. 
Hating yourself to clothe your own shame is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus takes your shame by forgiving your sin. He takes it. Gabriel told Joseph, angel's talking to Joseph, and he says, Mary's gonna bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Gabriel does not say, Jesus will deliver them from all hard circumstances. He will relieve their existential crises, or he will free their lives from suffering. Gabriel does not say, he will change their financial portfolio. He will endorse the right candidate, or he will ease family tensions. What Gabriel does say is that Jesus will save his people from their sins. He will become like them in every way, save a fallen human nature, and he came under the law to redeem them from the law that you and I might become children of God. That you and I might be freed from our hard-heartedness towards the things of God, from that internal pull towards darkness, from the wrath of God against sin that has taken us captive and sin we give ourselves to. What the prophets foretold, what God covenanted upon pain of death to himself so that we might live. And what the Son of God came under the law to do was to free us from the law of sin and death. In the becoming of children of God, being adopted into God's family, because of what Christ has done for you, you are to grow. You are to grow. This is all the imperatives of the epistles, that you act out what God has made true of you. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you exert grace-driven effort to give space and time and room for the Holy Spirit to change who you were and who you are into who God made you to be. And this, friend, just such an encouragement I want to give you. If you're like, what do I do? I didn't get a dream like Joseph. Must be nice. What do I do? The great work of your life is to become more like Jesus. The great work of your life is the patient, steady work of faithfulness. Day after day, year after year, decade after decade, that you might grow and be transformed into the image of Christ. And I got to tell you right now, because you might especially feel tempted in this today. There is no Christian maturity by spring break workout. There is no 90 days to holiness. There is the hard, daily offering of all of who you are to God. That's what it is. It's going to feel boring. Your phone's going to be more interesting. You're going to get distracted. You're going to shame yourself when you forget or you get behind. You're like, well, I'm a week behind. Who could read that? I might as well quit the Bible. I just feel shame for doing that. And I got to tell you, friend, Every awareness of your limitation, every awareness of your failure, every awareness of you not being God is an invitation to keep going, is an invitation to move forward. It is not the voice of God that says, well, you messed up on that one. You might as well stop. Christ invites you forward. 
Here's the thing, that the great work of your life is increasing dependence upon the Spirit of God to transform your mind, your loves, and your actions. It's the great battle of your life too. I wish it was just like, follow this thing and it won't be hard. But the great battle of your life is that the flesh, the world, and the devil are coming after you and they, because they want to steal glory from God. And they don't have to send you on a bender to do that. They just have to make you bored. All right? There is an enemy trying to rob glory from God and using you as a pawn in the process. So in a few weeks, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus will be back at the temple, each to fulfill another part of the law so that Jesus meets all the standards of the law perfectly, which we need him to do, and he does. And over the next few months, we'll look at how Jesus wasn't just you with greater self-control, but how the Son of God was tempted and did not sin, how he met sacrifice with resolve, and how he died that we might live. Christ didn't live a magical life on earth because he was God with skin on. Like the gift that you have by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if you're in Christ, that's the same spirit that Jesus depended upon his entire life. And he lives in you. So we'll consider the weight of this baby boy who was born to die as a man. And he was born to die as a man for those who would curse his name. And at his death, the earth shook because there was no one like and will never be anyone like Jesus. So here in the season of Christmas, we recognize that Christ came under the law that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption in the family of God. And I'll tell you this right now, if you're in Jesus, I just want to give you some encouragement. If you're in Christ, your end is secure. It's secure. He doesn't lose. He wins. And because you are in him, your end is secure, and the work that you are to be about now, between now and then, is becoming more like Jesus. It is the day in, day out, like I've said, year after year, decade after decade, offering of all of who you are to be renewed in the image of your maker that you might glory in him and honor him and give him glory and image him to the world. That's the work of your life. And I gotta tell you, why do you expect to do that in six months? Like, have you noticed as you've gotten older that it's harder to change really small things? It's just me. Like, I'm looking at things, like I read some journals from college a couple years ago, and I was like, really? 20 years later? I'm still doing that? It takes such work to change small things because we are so slow to learn and to listen and to change. But the good news is your end is secure, and from now until the end... Your work is to grow in the image of Christ. And however much you grow, that's what you get to give Jesus, the person you become. You get to work out your salvation in increasing dependence upon him, not trying to control your life by depending upon yourself. Now, if you're not in Jesus, if you're not in Christ, if you do not believe in him, as clearly as I can say it, is that it means that you are under the law and the wrath of God is coming. But the good news is, even as we read in Galatians, is that Christ has fulfilled the law. He was born under it. He's fulfilled it so that you might receive the adoption of being God's son or daughter.
And you can do that now or now <laughs> or now. You can do that. You can come to faith in Christ and have your eternity changed. There'll be men and women up here in a little bit who want to pray with you. They'd love to talk with you. And what they want to do is help you understand what it means to follow Jesus and to count the cost because it costs. It takes all you have and it gives you a life you could never get on your own. It gives you Jesus. And so they would love to talk with you. They'll be up here. Please come and find them. If you want to proclaim Christ, you want to give yourself to him and then be baptized, we'll do it right over here. Just come down and say, I want to do this. Now, it's Christmas. We're celebrating that Christ has fulfilled the law for us that we might receive this adoption. And I don't know a better way than to just sing our guts out, to praise him, to offer gratitude and praise that this little boy became a man and died for us and now lives and reigns. We are not without hope. We have hope. And our hope is Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for you. Where would we be if you had not moved towards us? We would be lost, bound, unable to see, to hear, to know what is true, good, and beautiful, but you have moved towards us. And for those in the room that do not know you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open their eyes now. Would you give us grace, Father, to see you and know you for who you are? And may we be about the work of our life to give you glory by becoming more like Jesus. Not disappearing, not, not using our gifts and who we are in our histories. We don't get washed away. We just have those things redeemed for your name. And we get to offer you the gifts that you've given us for worship to you. In every job, in every domain, in every place, in every family, we get to image you in those spaces. What an adventure. Would you help us see it that way? Oh, we love you. Would you receive this song as worship and as gratitude from our hearts? And we pray in Christ's name, amen.